If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in Iceland. Or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions. Lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature, which is now open in Iceland, will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app, and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge in the land of fire and ice to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Shurka. In this dark episode, you'll hear a troubling story about events that are seldom told to tourists. We're going to tell you about places you can see here that will bring these stories to life. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. So just sit back and put your headphones on for a darker side of Iceland. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. What took place on a remote farm in Iceland's West Fjords in 1802 would become material for Iceland's first crime novel. It would also mirror the most infamous Icelandic criminal case of the 20th century. In this episode, we're going to dive into a bit of Iceland's stark history. I'm going to tell you about two stories everyone in Iceland knows. The impact of these events, separated by a century and a half, both shook the local community, which was shocked and outraged. But it was the re-evaluation of the events that would truly shake the nation. Iceland's first books were the gruesome sagas written in the 13th century, but not since then had many events set out in the remote farmlands made it onto the pages of a book. But like the events in the Viking sagas, the story of what happened in 1802 would only be put to paper long after the four people connected to the events had died. We begin with the murderer's love story of Sjöndau. Red Sand Murders One slightly unusual sight in Iceland are yellow sand beaches. Along nearly the entire south coast of the country stretches a black volcanic lava sand beach, which makes a yellow sand beach feel foreign, 
The really special ones, those you find up in the West Fjords. These beaches are the work of countless generations of wolfish, great grey and blue fish with jaws of steel, some as big as five feet long, that have been crunching and spitting out seashells since time immemorial. Driving up to Iceland's largest ocean cliff, Lautrabjarg, at the very tip of the claw-like landmass of the West Fjords, brings you to beaches that feel more like Devon in the south of England than the subarctic. The 1,500-foot-tall and 8.7-mile-long cliff, with giant colonies of puffins and other seabirds, is breathtaking. On the south coast of the West Fjords is Rødesandur, which means red sand, one of the best-known sandy beaches in Iceland. It's a 40-minute drive from the nearest town of Patriksfjordur over a mountain pass, which is only open in summer. When the light is just right, the yellow sand turns red. In 1918, a small ship carrying the writer Gunnar Gunnarsson slowly passed the ruins of the farm Sjöndau, located on a small hill up from the long white beach. The story of the events that took place here 116 years before was part of Icelandic oral tradition. Nearly everyone in the sparsely populated country knew of the brutal torture and execution that resulted from the dramatic events of a love triangle gone horribly wrong. Here, face to face with the landscape where it happened, Gunnarsson decided to tell the whole story of the murders at Sjöndau. The dreamy look of the Rødesandur beach in summer can be deceiving. The winters can be ruthless. This peninsula is closer to Greenland than any other part of the country. And so, the story begins with a ruthless act of the Icelandic weather on the shores of the beach in the darkness of winter in the year 1817. The first event in this modern saga was the arrival of Bjarni Bjarnason at the parish church on a mild and gentle spring day. Bjarni Bjarnason brought with him to the church a coffin. The poor farmer, with blue eyes and scraggly beard, had brought his two boys, aged seven and eight, to receive a proper burial. The boys had supposedly died from the same respiratory illness that had plagued their mother for a long time. Their father, Bjarni, a broad-shouldered farmer, dug the grave himself. During the following winter, rumors began to circulate. Whispers about something very unusual and wrong taking place at the Sjöndau, where farmer Bjarni lived with his three remaining children and his wife Gudrun Eilsdottir. Recently, another family had arrived to share their homestead. Farmer Jón Thorgrimsson, his wife Steinun Sveinsdottir and their two children, came to live at Sjöndau. This was not unusual in Iceland at the time, as farms which depended on sheep were often shared in those hard, lean years. Bjarni was known for being somber, while Jón was known for nagging. Bjarni's wife, Ugudrun, suffered ill health, complaining in between fits of coughing about the same condition that had taken her young boys. Jón's wife, Steinun, was quiet, firm and proud, worn out beyond her years, yet still full of natural beauty. 
these were all people who normally kept the peace, and so the first year of sharing the farm passed with nothing more than quiet rumors. But the rumors were not pleasant. People had begun gossiping about the sinful attraction between Jón's wife Steinund and Bjarni. The coming winter was brutal, with thick ice covering the land. Blizzards raged and farmers struggled with hay for the sheep. The tension between the four adults grew steadily. Jón began to lash out at his wife Steinun for what he felt was her preference for Bjarni. Adding 20 hours of darkness and the raging Icelandic winter storms to a situation like that must have been suffocating. Living within the same small turf house, sharing the same room for sleeping, same kitchen, same dark dirt tunnels between the few living spaces, while feeling the anger of four individuals rising, that would be enough to drive anyone mad. And then, just like a raging storm that suddenly stops. The dynamics at Sjöndau suddenly shattered for a moment when Jón slid on ice and into the ocean. Shortly after the disappearance of Jón, Bjarni's wife Gudrun becomes seriously ill one night with violent stomach cramps. But Gudrun believes she's been poisoned by Bjarni and Steinun. She confides her theory to the few visitors she sees on the farm, recalling how she became ill after being served porridge that tasted strange. From here, the rumors begin to spread. Despite icy conditions and winter storms, the small country parish, including Bjarne and Steinun, attend church. Together, everyone wonders the same thing. By now, the rumors of an affair between Bjarne and Steinun had reached nearly everyone in the parish. Sjöndau became a name for all that went against the will of God, as if his power did not reach the remote farm at the edge of the red sand. With spring came the warmth and life that makes winter worth enduring. The grass grew green, and the migratory birds arrived from unimaginable places in the south. Their song extinguished the dread of winter, and the sound of newborn lambs was a promise that people would have meat in the autumn. And... At the end of May, when the midnight sun is conquering the last remaining darkness and all life blossoms in Iceland, Bjarni came leading a horse to church, carrying another coffin. Gudrun's weak heart had finally given up. But of course, the gossip mill now went into overdrive. Before the Reverend Eolver could bury the poor woman, demands were made by local officials to examine the body. She seemed peaceful in death, with only a slight blue mark on her chest. An older priest said it was common for blue marks to appear where long-standing pain had been present. And so, the coffin was closed, and Gudrun was buried next to her two boys, with the sound of the gentle waves lapping the red sand beach. The summer of 1803 began retreating with long golden sunsets lighting up the sky. The sun's slow descent in Iceland means the golden hour of autumn is more like a multi-hour overload of colors in the sky. It was at that turning point of the season, on September 26th, that the body of Jón Thorgrimsson finally washed up on shore. An examination of the body 
found him to have no broken bones. This was at odds with what Bjarne had said earlier, that Jón must have fallen from the tall cliffs onto the rocky shore below. Unbroken bones did not lend credibility to Bjarne's story. And worse, there was a suspicious hole in Jón's throat, almost as if from a blunt instrument. Suspicion grew. The pastor, Eyjólfur, wrote an official report about the state of the body and the circumstances of the death, and rode on a deadly quiet morning to deliver it to the local authority. What he was about to set in motion would haunt him for the rest of his life. If life at Sjö and thou had felt like living with the pressure of slowly rising floodwaters, it now felt as if the plug had been pulled from a tub of water. Shortly after Jón's death, without the support of a husband to run the farm, Steinun had been forced to move with her children to another parish. Not long after this, county officials arrested Bjarne, putting his three remaining children in the care of the parish priest, Eyjólfur. By now the winter storms had begun to rage, but the pastor only felt calm when the weather was at its worst. It was the only shelter he felt against the events that were sure to follow. One night, during a freezing winter chill, Bjarne's three children fled the home of Pastor Eyjólfur. Their plan was obviously to go home to Sjöndau, but their small bodies were soon overcome by the cold. The two girls gave up and died together on the ice, and the boy drowned in a nearby water-filled hole. Eyjólfur chose not to relay the message to their father. The man was suffering enough as it was. When Bjarne finally was told of the death of his remaining children, his only reply was a question. Don't you think I have enough on my mind as it is? The rumors that had colored life in the small country parish of Red Sand soon took on a solid shape in the trial of Bjarne and Steinun. In the winter of 1803, they were charged with the murder of their partners. The cold courtroom was the living room of a local priest. Small flasks of the local alcohol, the vodka-like brennevin, was passed around, mostly between the judge and attorneys. The tone was set from the start, with the judge proclaiming certainty of guilt before the trial began. When Bjarne pleaded not guilty to the charges, the judge responded by pounding his fist on the table, demanding the truth. This was, it appeared, a search for a truth that was already accepted, a brutal truth that was on everyone's lips, but to be confirmed it needed to come from the mouth of the monsters who perpetrated these acts of violence. One after another, neighbors, farmhands and the defendants were led into the courtroom, but none of the evidence clearly supported the murders that everyone assumed had taken place. Bjarne and Steinun stuck to their story, which reasonably explained the unfortunate events and the situations leading up to them. Hay was running out, and Jón had attempted to fetch what little hay was stored at Skor, which were steep ocean cliffs some distance from the farm. He had borrowed the Bjarne's ice-walking stick, but it was not enough for the steep hill. He had slipped and fallen into the sea. 
His unbroken bones could perhaps be explained by a high tide. Gudrun, on the other hand, had been seriously ill for years, and everyone knew it. She walked out one day to milk the sheep, collapsed, and died shortly after. What more was there to say? The evidence was surely inconclusive, and the testimony of the accused showed very few inconsistencies, but the judge alleviated any worries the prosecutor may have had. The interrogation of Steinem began. The judge began with the oldest trick in the book, a lie. That her co-conspirator Bjarni had confessed to everything. It would be best to tell the truth. Her version of the truth? Innocent. The story of the sinful evil, having inhabited Sjöndau, was being refuted with every answer she gave. Then, the questioning turned to the story widely spoken, that Gudrun had been poisoned well before her death. And now, suddenly, she hesitated. The silence in the courtroom was heavy. Steinen then revealed a secret. Bjarni had put something, a purple-white powder, into the porridge. What it was, she didn't know. She thought it might have been a joke on his part. But no matter. Whatever it was, it had not killed Kudrun. The Icelandic court, for all its shortcomings, still needed corpus delecti, proof that a crime had taken place. Two star witnesses who had worked on the farm testified about the fighting and quarreling at Sjöndau, about how Bjarni would defend Steinun against the abuses of her husband Jón. Neither couple slept together in the same bed for the last months. They testified about the anger, resentment and vague threats thrown around inside the small remote farm but also about the sinful softness, joy and laughter that Bjarne and Steinun shared in the dark corridors on winter nights while the other occupants of the house napped. How they hid in plain sight and caught moments together in a corner of the home filled with the noise of screaming kids. The softness of what they shared was crushed by the weight of how wrong it was. A procession of witnesses came forward with similar stories. It was clear from the witnesses that Jón had been furious over the situation and Gudrun had feared for her life after the poisoning. But still, there was no clear proof and no confession. The case was collapsing. Now let me take a moment here and give you a bit more context about justice in Iceland at this time. For centuries, the only recourse to any crime was either revenge, settlement worked out among the people, or the almighty Althingi, Iceland's unified parliament. The site of Althingi is now Thingvelli National Park, and you can check that out. It's about 40 minutes outside of Reykjavik. This was the courtroom of the Vikings, the powerful chieftains that killed at the slightest insult. Murder was a crime, but not as serious as losing power, control, or worst of all, honor. By the 19th century, the days of the righteous killings of the settlement era were long gone. It was a different society, where the ultimate power lay with a foreign king, the king of Denmark, who ruled with the use of ever harsher laws and punishment. Add to this the influence of the church. Christianity had become law in Iceland in the year 1000. This instilled a sort of morbid fear of all that was sinful, including the killing of other people. 
murder in Iceland slowly became seen as an individual evil, an act closer to the devil than the warrior-like Norse gods of old. It's fair to say, though, that in the era of 19th century rural justice, little of the old Viking blood still ran through Iceland's veins. We find ourselves in a makeshift courtroom, not so much in a village as a few houses. In the remote fjord Patreksfjörður, it's only five miles from Sjöndal, over the mountains. Today, you'll find the idyllic small fishing village of Patreksfjörður, on the other side of the fjord, which has its fair share of stunning yellow sand beaches. The area is quiet and remote, with only a few hundred inhabitants. The local guesthouse Stekkabol, or Njotur, will offer a base to explore the area, including the cliffs of Lautrabjarg, or, if you're inclined, to see where the fate of Bjarne and Steinun was sealed. We will put a link to these guesthouses in the notes. And now, we return to our story the judge was taking matters into his own hands. It seems the court, as well as the court of public opinion, was quite certain of the defendant's guilt, regardless of the evidence thus far. It was time for another tactic in which Eyjolfur, the parish priest, would play a leading role by talking to the defendants. It was no longer a question of truth in the judge's mind. The gossip and the belief in their guilt was perhaps more real than the truth and could only lead to one thing, the death of the defendants. They were, after all, guilty. Everyone knew that. But of what? That was less certain. No matter. They had to die. With a heavy heart, the pastor entered their prison cells the hayloft above the local farm. He spoke to Steinun about the chains of man and the power of God to cut those chains. The soft words broke something inside her and the fear of dying came spilling out. The pastor ordered the amateur guards to allow Bjarne and Steinun to spend the night together. He left them in a tender embrace and walked into a darkness that he described as an abyss of the soul. Their love for each other was surrounded by the reality of death, and for Steinun, there was the risk of her sons losing their remaining parent. Whether those fears led to what they said in court the day after, no one knows. But whatever the reason, the following day changed everything. Bjarni confessed to having killed Jón, but he claimed self-defense. Jón had turned around to hit him with his walking stick. When the body washed up on shore, Bjarne had buried it in the deep snow next to the farm, before throwing it back into the ocean weeks later. The killing of Gudrun, his wife, was done at the insistence of Steinun. She resented that her husband was gone, while Bjarne's wife still drew breath and kept them from being together. To convince him, Steinun threatened to expose him for the murder of Jón. And so... On that mild spring day, Bjarni suffocated his wife near the sheep pen overlooking the wide expanse of the red sand while Steinun held Gudrun's arms. They carried her into the farm where she died soon after. When Steinun later confessed, she accused Bjarni of forcing her to participate in the killing. She claimed he was the instigator 
in all of this. After the trial, when their fate was sealed, they spoke to the pastor again. Steinun said that happiness is not something you can conquer. Bjarne, on the other hand, said that their misfortune in life was to not have met before it was too late. The judge handed down their sentence. Steinun and Bjarne were taken to Reykjavik. There they waited to be taken to Norway for execution, as there was no capable local executioner. In 1805, soon after arriving in the capital, Steinun died of despair and angst, escaping the horrible death Bjarni was destined for. She was 36 years old. For decades, her body lay under a large mount of stones on top of the downtown hill Skólaverðustígur, where the massive church, Hallgrimskirkja, now stands. She was given a Christian burial 110 years later, including a tombstone. But Bjarne was taken to Norway in 1805, accompanied by a young priest who counseled him and finally watched as the broad-shouldered, somber farmer from Sjöndau was tortured and then executed. He was pinched with pliers that had been heated red-hot in a fire. Then first his hand and then his head was cut off. The story was recounted far and wide in Iceland, passed among the people by word of mouth, until immortalized by Gunnar Gunnarsson. His version of events is how we understand the story, and all the moral lessons that it imparts. In the end, how much does the truth of the events actually matter? This version is the story we have all come to believe. The details of one of the most infamous murder cases are based on a novel. Svartfugl, which means black bird, became Iceland's first true crime novel. It was based on the historical facts of the actual murder trial and the events that surrounded it. Gunnar Gunnarsson presented not only the writer's perspective, but a story that fills in a lot of the unknown. The book framed the story of Bjarne and Steinun with more compassion and sympathy than for their victims. The people of Iceland were swayed by Gunnarsson's version. But the verdict is the same. The writer and the court reached the same conclusion more than a century apart. They were, after all, guilty, like they said themselves. This is where the murders at Sjöndau share similarities to another murder case more than a century and a half later. As opposed to the short trial over Bjarne and Steinun, the Guðmundur and Gerfins case became Iceland's longest murder investigation with years in court and close to 200,000 pages of documents. Like the murders at Sjöndau shocked the small parish, the supposed killings of two innocent men by a group of troubled youth likened to the Manson family shook the small nation in 1976. That shocking story, which takes place 150 years later, is the next story I'm going to tell you. Hi everyone, Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up.
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Reykjavik in the 70s was a small city, changing fast. New buildings and whole neighborhoods grew the city from its old and small center of downtown. The culture, too, was evolving rapidly. Rock and roll and drugs had arrived, in part imported by soldiers at the local U.S. military base. Iceland at the time was a culture only familiar with alcohol, although plenty of it. It was a time of changing values, and there was widespread fear about the influence of drugs. This fear would color how people viewed those at the center of one of Iceland's most shocking cases. For people to go missing is not unusual in Iceland. 70 to 80 people disappeared without a trace between 1930 and 2018. In many cases, this is the result of Iceland's naturally dangerous conditions, but this case was different. It gained a life of its own where fact and fiction blurred. The determination of investigators to solve the case became a political crusade that was even influenced by Iceland's territorial struggles with the United Kingdom. Never has there been more news, more writing, more gossip and more interest in a criminal case in Iceland. It was a national obsession. Before we start, it should be noted that the Gwimundurngerfinur case has often been referred to as the woods by those that have done some research on it. The complication and amount of information is staggering Hence the metaphor. There was a Netflix documentary made about the case. We'll put that link and more in our notes. On the 26th of January 1974, 18-year-old Guðmundur Einarsson went to a local club, or ball, as it is called in Iceland. He was seen walking on his own, in stormy and snowy weather, in the town of Hafnafjörður, a 20-minute drive from Reykjavík. But he never made it home, and his body was never found. On the 19th of November, that same year, 32-year-old family man Geirfinnur Einarsson got a phone call in the evening from an unknown person. He was allegedly calling from the nearby harbor cafe in the small town of Keplavik, 40 minutes west of Reykjavik, next to the Keplavik International Airport. Geirfunur drove to the harbor cafe, left his key in the ignition, and disappeared. Again, his body was never found. In the autumn of 1975, police had begun to investigate the involvement of two men rumored to have been involved in Geirfunur's disappearance. During the investigation, children of a third man reported to police that their father had confessed twice, while drunk, to having been present when Geirfinnur fell off a boat, picking up smuggled alcohol at sea. The man refuted the story, and lack of evidence saw the whole investigation fall apart. At the end of 1975, the mystery of these two disappearances began to evolve into a narrative. 20-year-old Erla Botlatotir, a young mother, 
and former employee of the Icelandic postal system, was arrested on charges of embezzlement. She, along with her boyfriend, were accused of taking advantage of her position as a postal employee to cash fake money orders. She was brought to a local jail for interrogation, a location commonly used in those days. She was very eager to return home to her 11-week-old baby. No one has ever been able to confirm why, at the end of the interrogation, she was asked by the police whether she knew the young man, Guðmundur Einarsson, who had gone missing in the snowy night the year before. It had no relevance to what she was previously being questioned about, but this key moment would spiral out of control, a tiny spark that would start a much bigger fire. Erla had met him once, at a party, but that was it. Except it wasn't. She was informed by the police that she had knowledge about what had happened to Gvimundur. Perhaps she had witnessed something traumatic and simply buried the painful memory. They would help her to retrieve them. She was taken back to her cell, where she would spend eight days in solitary confinement. Then, with help from investigators, a narrative began to form from a vague dream she recalled. A dream which involved noises outside her bedroom window in January 1974. Had it been a dream? Or was it actually the arrival of her boyfriend, Saivar Siselski, and his friends late at night? Saivar had made it clear to her that these friends were not welcome at their home, and so the dream of them being there had made her afraid. But did a murder really occur inside their apartment? Again, the truth is subject to interpretation. The investigators began to help Erla remember. Before long, Erla had implicated her boyfriend, Saivar Marino Siselski, and his friend Christian Vidar Vidarsson and Tryggvi Rúnar Leifsson in what would become Iceland's most infamous murder case. After eight days, Erla was released from custody, free from the embezzlement questioning, and was being contacted by investigators who made her feel they had her best interest at heart. They began to ask her what her boyfriend Saivar knew about the Geirfinner case, Remember, this was the family man who had left his house to meet an unknown caller at a local harbor cafe in late 1974. Erla was questioned at her mother's home, where she was staying, and on four occasions at the prison, where she had been in solitary confinement two weeks earlier. Eventually, she would be arrested again, implicated in the crimes, and placed back into solitary confinement. After intense, long interrogations that lasted for weeks, the three men confessed to having killed both victims, Guðmundur by a deadly beating and Geirfinnur using a shotgun. The beating was said to be the result of late-night drinking and followed an altercation inside the house Erland Saivar had been living in. This confrontation was drawn from the original nightmare that Erla recounted. The killing of Geirfinnur, the second man, was a story more like something out of a crime noir novel from Iceland's underworld. A meeting at a secluded shipyard where Saivar, Erla's boyfriend, and two of his friends 
were trying to arrange the storage of illegal booze being smuggled into Iceland. The meeting turned violent, and Geirfinnur became the target. When the story was presented to the public by the authorities, a media frenzy followed, and the case gripped the nation like nothing before. There was little sympathy for the group of young troublemakers, but during the three-year period that they were being questioned, while in custody awaiting trial, their narrative swung wildly between differing accounts of what had happened. In one version, 20-year-old Erla confessed to shooting Geirfinnur with a shotgun, and then the group had taken his body to the area known as Rauðholar, or Red Hills, on the outskirts of Reykjavik, where they had burned and buried the body. In another version, the body of Gumundur had been transported by car, a little Volkswagen Beetle, into the lava fields outside Hafnafjörður. However, this was apparently during a snowstorm, when the gravel road would have been impassable. The stories being told by the suspects never quite added up. It took investigators a lot of work to mold them into a version of events that could be passed off as believable. The story had evolved with far-reaching threats. At one point during the interrogation sessions, the police began to ask her about additional suspects, one of whom was her half-brother. Men the police were especially interested in. And as the questioning progressed, Erdle implicated four additional people in the disappearance of Geirfinnur Einarsson. The men Erdle implicated were known as the clubmen, due to their connection to a nightclub known as the club, or klubburin. These four men were arrested and held in solitary confinement for three months. In the end, there was simply an absence of evidence to link them to Geirfinnur Einarsson's disappearance, and they were eventually released. The focus moved back to Erla's boyfriend Saivar, his friend Christian, and soon another person, an older friend and a former teacher of Saivar, named Guðjón Skarpjensson. It helped that these men had previously gotten into some minor scrapes with the police, and were not exactly choir boys. Coercing a confession from them would not only solve the case, but exonerate the investigators from any responsibility for the arrest and lengthy detention of the four innocent clubmen. In the end, they kept these men in the longest stretch of solitary confinement on record in Iceland's history. Saivar, Christian and Trikvi spent over 600 days alone in their cells. These are among the longest known solitary confinements in the Western world, outside of Guantanamo Bay. Erdla spent an additional 242 days in solitary confinement. Now, let's pause for a moment. This is, of course, a very complicated story, and like the case of the murders at Sjöndau, it had a far-reaching effect on the people of Iceland, becoming ingrained in the national psyche. And while the cases themselves are quite different, there's one strong similarity. The narrative of what happened was under the control of those writing it. The effect these stories had on the people of Iceland did not necessarily have anything to do with the truth. In 2015, I was working with the Welsh photographer Jack Latham on his project Sugar Paper Theories about the Guðmundur and Geirfinnur cases. I read through a lot of the case files, which consist of stacks of thick dossiers. I felt the power of the narrative presented in them, how the investigator's perspective of the suspect's guilt 
and their perspective for how these murders had supposedly happened was presented with such conviction. Many have said that the flaws and faults of the whole case were clear to anyone looking close enough, but when only one version of a story is presented, it tends to be believable. And there lies the extreme power that the prosecution had over the narrative and the lives of all those involved. Slowly, the story of these two murders was molded through long interrogations and suggestions of what might have happened. The process led to what is known as memory distrust syndrome, where information contrary to your own memory is presented by someone with authority, especially when pressured, and thus begins to erode the trust you have in your own memory. As investigators push certain possible narratives with a determination to solve a case, there is a risk of memory distrust syndrome. With intense pressure and long interrogations, the risk increases. People's inherent suggestibility or vulnerability to being coerced also plays a major role in the complicated process of admitting to something you did not do. We recognize now, after the fact, that this was likely what was happening during the investigation and confinement of the suspects in these two murders, but in 1976, the case was still not solved. Political pressure began to build on the investigators and the authorities. The case had actually become a stain on the Icelandic government. British politicians engaged in a fishing dispute with the Icelandic state used the case as an example of the nation's incompetence. To solve the tangled-up case, the authorities brought in the renowned German investigator Karl Schutz. Schutz had been involved with the Bader-Meinhof case in Germany, branded as a terrorist organization. His involvement in the Icelandic investigation added political suspense to a crime thriller. With no bodies and no forensic evidence, a written confession was paramount. Schutz, along with the Reykjavik investigators, used an interrogation technique that jumped back and forth in questioning, constantly confusing the timeline. It was known as the Indian Method. Even though the merits of the case were suspect, and suspects had retracted their confessions, prosecutors pushed forward to trial. On the 2nd of February 1977, a press conference was held. It was announced that the case, before going to trial, had been solved, and the nightmare lifted off the Icelandic nation. Five months before sentencing, Karl Schutz and his German BKA team were awarded the highest medal of the Icelandic state. Based on previous false confessions, six people were convicted of various charges relating to the disappearances of Guðmundur Einarsson and Geirfinnur Einarsson. Some of the charges included murder. Two sentences of life in prison were reduced to 17 and 16 years in the Supreme Court. The other suspects also had their sentences reduced, ending in 13, 10 and three years. Erla was convicted only of perjury for implicating the clubmen in the Gerfinu case. This minor conviction would prove to be the razor's edge of where the responsibility would fall decades later. But back then, while Icelanders were discovering disco music and foreign cuisine like pizza, the longest trial and solitary confinement in Iceland's history was finally over. Or so the story was meant to go. 
a core group of people, some personal friends of the convicted, spent decades trying to untangle the web created in hopes of proving the innocence of these six people. To many, the case was like a jigsaw puzzle that had pieces missing and others forced to fit. It would be decades before the work of forensic psychologist Kiste Guionson on memory distrust syndrome was accepted as cause to reopen the case. The case would not be examined until 2012, close to four decades after the events. Finally, in 2018, five people were acquitted of all charges relating to the disappearance of Gummundur and Geirfinnur, making it the biggest case of miscarriage of justice in Iceland's history. The loss of freedom for the six persons convicted was anywhere from months to just over eight years. The impact of carrying the stigma of guilt for such a horrible crime in a small and close-knit society like Iceland is hard to fathom. The government opened up a dialogue for compensation as part of resolving the nightmare. A nightmare that was supposed to have been lifted from the public in 1977. Meanwhile, it had continued for those wrongfully accused. Bjarni and Steinun got a poetic narrative that was sympathetic to them, but their guilt, whether true or not, stuck. In the Glumundur and Geirfinnur case, there are countless people that carry heavy burdens because of what happened. The largest financial compensation for any miscarriage of justice, just under $6 million, was finally paid out in 2020. One final charge remained. The perjury charges against Erdla for incriminating innocent men of crimes they did not commit. To this day, the charges stand. It is the only thing that keeps the system from admitting full responsibility. That is a responsibility that was given to a 22-year-old girl in 1977. She has been carrying it ever since. And so, what is the takeaway from Iceland's most infamous murder investigations? In both cases, the line between fact and fiction became blurred, to the point that falsehood became truth. While the writer Gunnar Gunnarsson wrote a sympathetic novel about the convicted killers of Sjöndau, the investigators working the Gudmundur and Girfins case went the opposite direction in developing the original story of two shocking murders. In both cases, there is a story of how a certain innocence of the nation was lost. The nation was gripped by Gunnar Gunnarsson's novel in 1928, just like it was by the Gummundur and Geffins case in 1974 and to this day. Perhaps since the writing of the first sagas in the 13th century, there has been a morbid appetite for crime, murders and the search for justice. There is no lack of material in the ever-growing Nordic noir literature and books by authors, Irsa Sigurdóttir and Arnaldur Indriðason, always revolving around murder, are bestsellers year after year. So although Iceland is generally a safe place with low numbers of violent crime, it does have a dark side and an appetite for dark stories.
Remember to check out the other Icelandic episodes in this guide for deeper dives into Iceland's renewable energy saga and what to do with your kids while in Iceland. Whether you're heading to Iceland right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis, when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode, and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Barcelona, Los Angeles, Hawaii, London, and many, many more, and many more to come. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.